Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and one of my very favorite teachers is joining me today. I'm looking forward to bringing him onto the program in just a minute. And we've got uh, a lot happening here at Faith Radio. So thank you for um, always tuning in. Thank you for supporting us. And you can always head over to MyFaithRadio.com and check out all the special uh, promotions we have. And you know, if you're a new listener, welcome. Uh, especially if you are new to the the, uh, the show, you can go get your free welcome Welcome Pack Gift. You can request yours at MyFaithRadio.com. When it comes to straightforward, clear thinking and clear teaching, Jay Warner Wallace is just at the top of my list, and he is a Dateline-featured cold case homicide detective. He's a popular national speaker, best-selling author, and he uh, is also a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I could go on and on. More than any of that, it's like having coffee with a good friend. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, I, I so I'm just privileged you could actually say that. I feel the same way oh. about you as well. This is the one show I, I come back on frequently is, is you because uh, I think we kind of hit it off years ago when I was there in your neck of the woods. Yeah, and I g- g- love the opportunity just to kind of talk about things that are important in life. Right? Yeah, this is what yeah. We do. So. I so I so appreciate your straightforward uh, biblical understanding and, and approach to teaching God's word and their. As so many instances in the New Testament where Paul warns about false teachers and beware, and whose job, whose responsibility is it to be letting people know that there's these false teachers out there? How do we yeah, do that? No. This is like the question that I, I wrestle with this, right? Because it, 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 as, a, as a public Christian, somebody who, who's trying to make the case or at least represent Jesus publicly in either book form or speaking or whatever it may be, um, this is the the real the, the real wrestling match that I have too. It's, at what point, like we always say, okay, to, to, to make a case for the historicity of the, the uh, or the reliability of Scripture, that's one level of what I try to do. Uh, but then it, that would just be called, but maybe evidential apologetics or scriptural, you know, apologetic Christian theology, Christian apologetics. But then to make a case for why Christianity or what Christianity says on cultural issues. Like cultural apologetics, right? What, what's, what is our position on all these hot topic issues that seem to divide us as a nation? That's where I think it, it becomes – because I always look at it this way. I, I want to woo people toward truth. You cannot push someone toward a, a truth claim. You have to pull them toward it because you, I can force my kids to, to do something. But they wouldn't really uh, – they wouldn't they'd have a change of heart in order to do that. They would just be forced to do it, and so they would find out – end up you know, doing what I ask them to do. But it wouldn't really result – be happening because of a changed heart. So I have to, to kind of woo them toward this, and then when they decide this is true and embrace it and live it, it's by choice. It's, tr- it's actually a changed heart. It's a renewal of the mind. So the question becomes, like, if I'm trying to do this, I'm trying to persuade people toward truth. Um, you know, what, what's that? What's the level of persuasion I need to use, or what is the degree, or how does that even look? And so here's how I look at it in Scripture. You see this all the time. Uh, the, the character of God. We are people who follow Christ. We are Christ followers. We are Christians, Christians. So if that's who we are, 
then the question becomes, well, what is it the nature of Jesus? It really is about the nature of God. And, and how is it that we um, can reflect that nature uh, to the world around us? And as I'm struck, as I read through Scripture, I'm struck by one reality over and over and over again. And you see this in the Old Testament and the New about the nature of God. It says over and over and over again that God holds in perfect balance the two aspects that we struggle with, and that is the, the distinction between justice and mercy, or maybe you would call it truth, justice, truth, and grace, mercy, grace, the kind of the difference between law and love. You know, These are the, the, the things that God holds in perfect balance. And you see this all over the place. Psalm 116, the Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. Okay, so that's there it is. It's grace and justice, grace and righteousness, grace, law, and love. This thing he holds in perfect balance. Then as he comes to us in human form, what does John say? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. There it is again. The balance between grace and truth. And then we're called to reflect the nature of God, and to reflect the nature of Jesus. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. There's that justice thing. And to love mercy. <laughs> There's that mercy thing. So it's this balance between justice and mercy, law and love. This is It's really hard to hold that. And so what happens is, as we connect with the world around us, we either because we're fallen humans, we don't have the perfect balance between these two things. We we either fall on one side or the other, and we are doing too much of one or too much of the other. So we are either willing to overlook all sin because we want to get along and love people, mm-hmm. or we are uh, terribly critical of every sin because we don't show enough mercy to people. How do you hold justice and mercy as we're called to do? as is reflected perfectly in Jesus of Nazareth, as is reflected perfectly in, 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 in God's character in both the Old and the New Testament. How do you do that? And what I see is that Christians will say, well, look, you know, if you're, if you're the kind of person who, who falls on the side of mercy but forgets about justice, then you'll say, well, Jesus, he, he, he ate with sinners. And so we should be eating with sinners. That's how we should be loving of sinners, Okay. Uh, if you're somebody who fa- who falls on the side of justice and minimizes mercy, you're like, hey, well, Jesus turned over the tables in the, in the temple. So, so which is it? But of course, what we know is that, that in both of those scenarios, Jesus of Nazareth, he may appear to you to be acting uh, more on the mercy side, but he's got justice fully in mind. Or he may appear to you to be acting more on the justice side, but he has mercy fully in mind. He's balancing these perfectly as the one perfect human. So when Jesus eats with the sinners, it's because he doesn't want to leave them in their sin. He wants to. He wants everyone at Matthew's dinner table to become a Matthew who leaves the sin and becomes a disciple of Jesus. So it's because he loves, but he wants... He wants you to, to repent. That This is often expressed in our lives in the, the call to repentance and forgiveness. These are things, by the way, that will change your marriage, too, and change your life, change the way you parent. The two sides of God's nature in our relationships is typically expressed through us being willing to turn from our own sin. There's the justice side. And us being willing to forgive others who are still struggling to do that. There's the mercy side. 
So I think that this is how and I make a, a decision about how I'm going to interact with culture, how I'm going to interact on this issue in the church. I'm just asking myself, okay, so how do I balance these two things that God holds in perfect balance? If I'm going to have to act harshly now, it's got to be tough love. I've got to act harshly with the idea that it stands on the shoulders of love. If I'm going to give grace here, I'm going to have to give grace in a way that does not uh, um, celebrate or justify misbehavior. Because if I do that, then I'm not standing on my love's not standing on the shoulders of justice. So I think that's the trick for us: is how do we balance those two things? Mm. Jim, very well constructed thought. I appreciate uh, what you just said and how well you said it. And I, I'm going to continue, I think, to uh, ask some additional questions. I, and I think of Paul in first chapter of Galatians that he says, "If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse." Do you think these are pretty radical words? Oh, now, absolutely. When you hear about uh, false teachers and false messages, and you think that people will gather around teachers to hear what their itching ears want to hear and living in today's culture where nobody wants to be judgmental, everyone wants to be loving and accepting. And when a body of believers say, no, this teaching is not true, and it's it's different, it's, it's a deviation from God's word, they start saying, well, you're judgmental. That group of people are unloving. Well, even okay, everyone's judgmental. I mean, everyone <laughs> makes a judgment and then and then it holds a view of others based on their 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 judgments. Um, look, when he says this, um, when Paul says this in Galatians, uh, he starts off by saying, "I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel," mm-hmm. which, by the way, is really no gospel at all. Right. There's the problem. Without the gospel, we cannot be united to Christ. We cannot be united to God. The gospel is the key that unlocks our entryway into into the realm of God. It always has been. It always, by the way, anything other than that does not work. This is what Jesus said. You know, except for, you know, for, I, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the reason why he's saying that you're look, we're all under God's curse because we cannot be perfect and be in the presence of a perfect being without accepting the identity and the the work of Jesus on the cross. So it turns out we are already under God's curse, and you'll just simply, he's saying here, as we've already said, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what I've, you've accepted, let him be under God's curse. What he's meaning is let him remain under the curse he's already under, because without the gospel, you will not be reunited to God. You'll be separated from God for all eternity. So it's true we have to make sure that people don't replace the one uh, passageway with other alternative passageways who don't lead to the same place. And this is true not just for the, for, uh, the gospel as it's distorted under different you know, ways of thinking about Christianity today where people are compromising. Again, what are they doing? Most of the time in progressive Christianity, what I see is that the people, again, are not holding God's righteousness and mercy in perfect balance. They, they are faulting on the side of mercy. I want to accept everyone as they are, but never judge anything under the view that God holds about sin. So they've got their, their scales, if you can see them as a scale, the side that has uh, uh, mercy is really heavy, and they're not thinking at all about what's – but think about this. You cannot love without certain judgments. Here's what I mean. If I'm driving down the road, and my son is with me in the car, and I say, David, I love you more than I could ever love anybody else. And he's like, wow, this guy really loves me. But then as I, I, I stop at a stop sign. I see a guy run out of a, a liquor store, and he's shooting bullets back at the owner, and she's just done a robbery. And I stop him. I say, Mr. Robert, 
I just want to tell you I love you more than I could ever love anybody else. <laughs> okay. But now my son's like, oh, dude, he doesn't really love me that much. Because right. he says that to everybody, even people who sh- you shouldn't even say that to. He says it to everybody. So unless there's some justice in your, uh, your display of love, your love is just, it's, it's just it's meaningless. It's just a, um, uh, you know, it's just, it serves no purpose at all because you're not even, ju- you're not even just in how you, you, you dispense your love. If you love everything and everyone, you don't love anything or anyone. And that's the problem because love requires us. You, if, you, if you say you love your wife deeply, but you love every woman that same deepness, well, then you don't really love your wife that deeply. And there's the problem. And so I think that even for us to say that, that if, if you are going to be somebody who says, I want to love the people around, I don't want to – well, you have to judge. But for example, the people who say they are so tolerant will not tolerate people like us who say you, not, not, you shouldn't tolerate some things. So this idea that, that, okay, tolerance means that I have to accept everyone's view as equally meritorious, well, they don't do that. If I hold the view that not things are not equally meritorious, they will say, "Well, then you're judgmental." They they will they they cannot accept that view. But their view says that they must accept everyone's view as equally meritorious. Well, my view is that things are not equally meritorious. Can you accept my view as equally meritorious to you? No, you can't. So you see, even people who say that they want to accept everyone's view, they are judgmental about many views. There's something that they would say is vile. There's something they would say. To be honest, what I see happening is that there more and more people are saying, well, the Christian worldview is the worldview we must reject. But hey, on a second, you can't reject my worldview because your worldview says that to reject a worldview is to be judgmental. Are you admitting you're being judgmental? There's the problem. Everyone makes judgments, and we are called as Christians to make judgments. But we are called not to make hypocritical judgments. First, remove the, 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 the log that's in your eye before you complain about somebody else's splinter. But he says, first, before you means that you are to make a judgment. But just make sure that before you make the judgment that you don't have the same problem in your own life. Mm, that's critical, though. That's critical. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. We're going to take a break. When we come back more, we're going to continue talking about false teachers and and living in this culture and making a difference for the kingdom. Uh, be right back. My guest is Jay Warner Wallace. You can go to coldcasechristianity.com, coldcasechristianity.com. If you like candy, that's a candy store. He's got all kinds of articles, blogs, videos, uh, lots and lots of material. You will love it there, and I, I practically insist you go, coldcasechristianity.com. We're talking about false teachers today with uh, Jim, and Second Peter 2.1, uh, uh, he says, there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, and I think uh, in this day in our culture, Jim, I think there's more and more false teachers uh, than ever before, and we are uh, being asked as Christians to uh, be non-judgmental and loving and merciful, which I think we need to be. But we also need to be wise and uh, call out where there's error. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, what I love about this, we, you know, I've always talked about like what, what is the motivation behind behind misbehavior? If someone is going to pervert or distort the gospel, I think we could at least say, well, that's from a Christian perspective, that would be misbehavior. <laughs> Certainly, uh, I Paul agree. thinks it is, right? Paul's constantly writing about this misbehavior. Well, what causes any misbehavior? It's always going to be sex, money, or power. Mm-hmm. Now, sex, money, or power is what's behind every murder, behind every sin, and we see this in second. I think it's in Second John. I gotta figure. I'll find out where. I think it's in Second John two, anyway, or maybe it's First John two. Uh, but those are that's a place where it talks about the pride of the, the pride of the, uh, the lust of the heart, the lust of the eyes, you know, pride of, pride of life. These are things that are sex, money, and power. Now those things are always behind our misbehavior, and you'll see that this is even if you think about those things, those are all things that are me focused. I want money. I want girlfriends. I want more respect or power or to be the authority everyone looks to for information. Uh, all of those those motivations for bad behavior are motivations that are driven by our desire to elevate self. So look what Peter says in, in Second Peter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Hmm. Now, what are they doing? Well, they're, you're, by, what they want to be the authority that only Jesus is. So I will deny the sovereignty of Jesus so I can be the one who stands up. It's, again, it's that pursuit of self. And you'll see this. This is, you know, why would you be surprised in a culture that is a selfie culture in which everyone can become uh, celebrities on social media? Everyone has a potential to be an influencer. This is called the atomization, right, of culture, where mm-hmm. we are no longer see ourselves as part of traditional communities, and we extend the values of those communities, but we instead see ourselves as little islands where we can develop our own uh, set of, of mores that we only have to measure against ourselves, and each of us has, can tailor our own custom uh, intake of entertainment, our intake of news, our personal expressions elevated. We all now have the platform that used to be reserved for only a few. We all now have the ability to isolate ourselves and express ourselves. And my opinion matters. How I identify myself matters more than how the community identifies me. Uh, everything now is about the atomization of individuals over communities. Well, would you be surprised in that kind of an environment where everything is becoming more and more about the individual? That there be more false teachers who are denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, right? Right. Because they are elevating themselves. Well, of course, we're in a culture that elevates the self. Yeah. So, and that there's, I think, the problem. Now, why I'm not surprised that, that we're at a, t- a point where we probably have more um, false teachers than ever before, because everyone wants to see themselves as a teacher. Yeah, that's such a right? good point. Yeah, Jim, I want to ask you about how to recognize counterfeit Christianity. Um, I'm sure when there's a different source or a different message of some kind, or they're taking a different position, or a, uh, they're looking at God's character incorrectly, that's probably very blatant. But when you arrest somebody, the minute they open their mouth and start talking, you're starting to evaluate whether or not what they're saying has any truth to it. So I suppose it's what they say and how they're saying it. Um, because how many times have you arrested somebody when they have told you uh, A, and it was not even remotely true? Well, I mean, this is – so how do you know? Well, how do you know something is true? Well, it's called correspondence uh, theory of, of truth, that the, 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 what the claim actually corresponds accurately to what is true in reality. So if I say uh, there's a, a chair in the next room, and then I walk in the next room, and there actually is a chair in the next mm-hmm. room. 
well, then my claim matches the objective reality of the existence of the chair in the room. So I think that's that's so it corresponds one to one. My claim corresponds accurately with reality. Um, and but of course the question then becomes, well, how do I know if it comes to Christian claims? How do I know that my beliefs or someone's teaching uh, is actually compares uh, uh, corresponds accurately to reality? Well, we have to first of all be committed to understanding what the reality of Scripture is. And the part of the problem is is that so few people are even aware of of their even have read their Bible have are have biblical literacy know what the objective claims are of Scripture uh, know how to read a Bible verse in its context so they can't cherry pick it out and turn it into whatever they want it to be um, so this is part of the problem right is that you can only spot a heresy by first knowing True. what the what the true thing actually is and there's the problem now what I do like is that you will see that 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 we are a um, Christianity is a creedal worldview, in the sense that historically it has um, proclaimed a number of creeds. Uh, in other words, um, small distillations of what is true in taught in Scripture. Um, so, for example, you'll see this even in Scripture itself that there are small micro-creeds in Scripture, like 1 Timothy 3.16. And great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of our religion. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on the world, taken up in glory. If you look in your Bible, there's a good chance that that is indented in your Scripture by the, uh, the publisher of the Bible, because it's really a mini-creed, an early creed, so it's not unusual for the authors of Scripture even to want to summarize what is the objective truth that we ought to be standing on if we're going to call ourselves Christ followers. You see this also in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, right? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You'll usually see it indented, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That Read that whole passage from verse 5 to 11. You'll see that it's a mini creed of sorts. Even in Acts, you'll see this in Acts 15 when they, they send out that after the first uh, council, and they send that letter out, right, to, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Well, he's, they're trying to summarize what it is that is important for you to know and to practice. Well, it turns out that, that this, is, this, is, this then becomes part of Christian history. You know, very early on, in the late 2nd century, there's a, a, a rule of faith written by Irenaeus in which he kind of argues – what is essential uh, in this faith? In, in this faith, he says, in one God, the Father Almighty, who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who has made flesh for our salvation. He goes on and on. He's making a summary of what is true. So I'm a big fan of the creeds. You'll see that there's a, another creed from Hippolytus about uh, early third century, and then of course you have the, the the widely accepted creeds called the Apostles' Creed. Right, and mm -hmm. then what, so what happens in the Apostles' Creed is so interesting. We used to—I had a church for years. We would have our kids would memorize the Apostles' Creed. It's only about maybe what eight to ten lines, and yeah, it really gives you a good summary. Let's talk about the, what it is. Yeah, let's talk about those eight to ten lines after the break. If you're yeah. all right with that, Jim uh, Wallace is my guest. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back with lots more.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. It says in First Peter 2, there will be false teachers among you. So you wonder how do we apply this warning because there's a lot of awfully nice people out there. But do they believe in the authority of the Bible and the exclusivity of the salvation in Christ? And if they don't, we have trouble. My guest is Jay Warner Wallace. He's a cold case detective and a uh, apologist, author, speaker, and all-around amazing guy. Um, so we were right before the break, uh, you were talking about the creed. I'd love to get back to that. Well, and the reason why I bring it up, and I want to get geeked out on creed stuff, but the reality of it is, is that the, the existence of creeds simply is it demonstrates the fact that Christianity has always, um, has always um, uh, stood on objective claims about the nature of Jesus, the nature of God, and the reason why we have creedal statements is because we are trying to to make sure that we are on the same. The reason why these creeds appear is because heresy appears, mm-hmm. and in response to heresy. Those who are re- – and a lot of times heresy is by people who either focused on just one book of the Bible and formed their entire theology around one gospel or around one letter, and they started to go sideways because it takes the entire counsel of the New Testament to make sense of any one verse in the New Testament. And if you don't have that entire counsel, if you're not familiar with how to connect those dots, it is easy. Now, you might say, well, that seems like it's really hard. Like it should be easier for Christians to be able to master this. Well, Really? Really, you, you've trained yourself in your profession, I bet, to be able to connect thousands of dots, and, and you had no problem doing that. You were actually eager to do it. Well, why wouldn't we be just as eager to connect all of the dots, the, the kind of um, the, the dots of, of meaning between all of the claims of, 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 the, of the Council of Scripture? Why is it we're so lazy when it comes to our Christian understanding, mm. yet we're so uh, uh, tenacious when it comes to you know, learning about your job or, or learning about your, you know, your, your hobby. Sometimes, you know, the hobby alone is, is more important than, than our, our Christian faith. So this idea, for example, I was talking about the Apostles' Creed. Here's why I think it's interesting. The Apostles' Creed made certain claims uh, about the nature of God and Jesus, and it turns out that it was not specific enough that, that there were even distortions and so then, of course, people come back together to say, well, we better kind of refine this creed. I love the Nicene Creed, which is the next creed in line, because that what that does – for example, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Mormons can affirm the Apostles' Creed. But the Mormons cannot affirm the Nicene Creed, because the Nicene Creed kind of defines terms that are assumed in the Apostles' Creed. And, of course, you know, most of the Mormons who, who, who you know have probably redefined all those terms as part of their theology. I know they have. So, so then that's why we have to come back and say, you know, when we say this, we really mean this as definition because <laughs> you guys are distorting it. So mm-hmm. it turns out that creeds are not really an effort to, to, to um, assertively and, and proactively um, um, you know, control people as much as they are uh, and reactively trying to correct heresy that's already existing and they're hearing it. So they want to react to that heresy. By now, look, why are we doing that? Because it turns out the truth matters. And you can say, well, if I know enough about Jim Wallace, I know that there is someone named Jim Wallace and he lives in this city. Well, it turns out there's like six of us in my little city. There's like six Jim Wallaces. Does it matter which Jim Wallace you're talking about? Probably. I can give you directions to one of the other Jim Wallace's house, but if you take those directions, you're not going to end up at the Jim Wallace you think you are. So it turns out there's a certain amount of accuracy in the information you need about this Jim Wallace if you want to come to my house for dinner tonight. Right. 
so the same is true for God. If, if there, you want to be in his home for all eternity, you probably need some specificity and accuracy about what you think the directions are that will get you there. So, Jim, you've got a neighbor, let's say, who says to you, hey, Jim, you're, you write books on Christianity. Well, tell me your thoughts on this. I've, at the church I've been going to for 25 years, they're, they're talking about uh, starting to marry same-sex couples. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'd say, look, I'm not the judge of what it is that is righteous. God is the judge of what it is that's righteous. So my opinion doesn't really matter. You know, I was raised in the arts. I, most of the community I hang out with was very different than the community I hang out with now. And, and it's not about what I like or what I wish was true. It's do I have good reason to believe that the claims made on the pages of Scripture are objectively true? Now, the reason why I think they are is because I took the time to do the investigation to determine if the resurrection really occurred. And if the resurrection really occurred, then the person who was resurrected, Jesus of Nazareth, has a different level of authority than anyone else you're going to encounter on the pages of fiction or nonfiction. That authority is derived from the fact that he's the one risen man. And I'm going to listen to him because of that authority. Now, I don't just do it blindly. I actually have good evidential reasons to believe the resurrection occurred. That's why apologetics does matter. And that, because of that, I, I actually trust what he says about marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, there would be lots of times when it would be easier for me not to believe that. Or I might like somebody, I just think I wish, I wish it wasn't true. But the reality of it is if, if this, is, this is God's design for us as humans, and God sees any alternative as sin. I don't, if I don't like it, or if I do like it, it doesn't matter, mm. because I'm not the authority here. And the only reason why I trust that God is the authority is because I think that book is authoritative, because I've tried to test it in every way I could to see if it was authoritative. And once I'm done doing that, I have to embrace everything it tells me. I'm not at liberty to change the words of Jesus of Nazareth. I'm not at liberty to change the, you know, the, the law uh, before Jesus even arrives on the scene. I don't have that ability. I'm just the reader of these things. But if I'm going to call myself a Christ follower, I have no problem with you saying, okay, that, I find that teaching of Jesus so offensive that I could never be a Christ follower. I get it. That was me for most of my life. Mm-hmm. I've, not yet, I've not yet been a Christian as long as I was an atheist. So, so I, I get it. I totally understand. But on the other flip side of that, if you're saying, no, I am a Christ follower, but I reject the teaching of Jesus, well, then that's just nonsensical. That makes no logical sense. So I just can't. That's one thing, and this is what I think Paul is saying. You know, he gets it. There are people who are unsaved. You know, most of his arguments in the letters that he writes are to churches about people who claim to be in the church as Christ followers. That to me is even more disturbing, right? Because it leads people who are Christ followers and are devout astray. And this is what I think Paul and Peter find most offensive. You see this in Second Peter is that you have false teachers coming in. And you guys should know better because you're the ones who call yourselves Christ followers. So I get it. There are people who won't accept this, and they'll never become a Christ follower because they'll think, if I have to believe this about this issue in order to be a Jesus follower, then I have no desire to be a Jesus follower. But we're talking about people who already say they are Jesus followers, who are just simply willing to compromise what it is Jesus says to make it palatable for themselves. And that's, where I think, where the real danger is. Yeah, so I'm still your neighbor asking follow-up questions now. So, okay. uh, Jim, is what I'm hearing at my church, is that coming from a false teaching? 
Well, how would you know? I think the only way to know it, you know, if, if someone hands you that false $50 bill, that counterfeit, the only way you're going to know it's a counterfeit is to compare it, of course, to the real $50. Go get a real $50 bill. Right. And let's take a look at it and see if you can spot any differences. So I think here we'd say, well, look, the only way to know if it's false teaching is are you biblically literate enough to spot a lie when you first hear it? I don't think you are. <laughs> I don't think you are because most <laughs> of the, the polling tells me you're not. Um, I'm talking to just a quick um, search here. I just saw right. it yesterday. A Gallup study. Uh, about the Bible. Uh, here it is. Uh, fewer in the U.S. now see the Bible as the literal Word of God. Well, it turns out it's not. They're talking about people in the church. This study just came out. I think it's dated. It's dated July 6th. So it's not not too long ago, right? Um, and it talks about Americans' view of the Bible and how many people who are in the church. Actually, I think now only about less than half the church believes that the Bible is the actual Word of God. Um, that to me is – to people who are – who the importance of religion and views of the Bible is the actual – to people who say that religion is very important, only 44 percent say the Bible is the actual word of God. That's pretty interesting, right? Uh, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so I think it's time for us to, to, to ask the question, well, if you think – if you're a Christian, a Christ follower, and you're in a church, and you're wondering if maybe the teaching from the pulpit is, um, is heresy – well, the only way you would know that is if you become a better scholar on that topic than your pastor is. Not mm-hmm. hard to do. Not hard to do, especially with all the online resources. Yeah, right. You can find out what, what does the Bible say on that issue by simply doing the research. And so you won't be able to pull out one verse because you can, you can just do it on any of these Bibles, um, online Bible resources. You can just put in the word you're looking for. You can get every verse in which that word appears, and you can figure out which of those actually are pertinent to your, to your issue. And you can read them all. And then you have to think to yourself, okay, this is why cumulative cases, this is why I was always a cumulative case guy as a detective. Because I, I don't have, I've worked in cold cases, I don't have the benefit of, of one piece of slam dunk evidence that solves the case. I have to build a case on the back of 80 pieces of evidence that have to point to the same reasonable inference. When I build a theological case, I don't want to build it on one verse, I, I want to build it on as many verses as discuss the issue as possible. And then if I've got one verse that seems like it's an outlier, I'll know it's an outlier because I'll know I've got to, I've got to inter- I don't want to interpret 25 verses on the topic through the lens of that one verse that seems to say something different. If you've got 25 to 1, you need to interpret the one verse through the 25 that make a case cumulatively. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this is about, I mean, how willing are you to, to, to read and understand your own Bible? By the way, people, uh, churches that have a high regard for uh, discipleship, and and for Bible knowledge, probably fare much better than um, churches that don't. Churches that, you know, if you bring a Bible or read your Bible, that's okay. You don't need to bring it. I'll put the verses on the screen. Mm-hmm. You don't even need to bring a Bible. I'll just be, uh, you don't even need to, you know, this is why sometimes going through the Scripture sequentially in an exegetical study is better, it can be better than doing a topical study. I think there's time and place for topical studies. But I think that you have to know the whole scope of Romans before you start pulling any verse out of Romans to make a case. Yeah, so good. So one more neighbor question. Uh, Jim, do you think I should find another church? Uh, if they're not teaching the Bible, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty simple, right? I mean, it's not about uh, – I think so, here's what I think is troubling for a lot of people. The, 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 the should I find another church question, they're wrestling, well, how would I know? Well, I don't think uh, – how would you know you compare it to Scripture? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times we're wondering, should I compare it to how it's making me feel? 
Should I compare it to how people act in the church? Should I judge it based on what the behaviors of this church is? Do they serve enough? Do they do the other things? Are they welcoming enough? No. You, it, everything comes down to, is it, uh, does it resonate? Is it true when compared to Scripture? Yeah. That's all it is. Mm. And, and so in the end, if you're in a place where you think, hey, I think this is heretical, should I leave? I, well, yeah. Now, look, I think what you can do before you just walk out is I would, and, you know, Matthew, I think it's 18, I would, compare, I would go to the offending person who's another Christ follower, and I would have a meeting with that pastor first. Because maybe, maybe you know, for all you, it, I don't know, again, if you again, everything's measured against Scripture. So if he tells you something in a private meeting that does not reflect the truth claims of Scripture, you're done. Mm-hmm. But I think it is important for uh, pastors who are going in this direction to hear from leaving congregants that the reason why they're leaving is not because they got busy or were in a COVID lockdown, or no, it's because you're not teaching Scripture. Mm-hmm. Because the only way you're going to correct this is those groups need to shrink. And they need to shrink because people who know better leave. Yeah. Jim, when you wake up in the middle of the night, does your brain go from zero to 100 in like two seconds? After the fourth cup of coffee. Okay. okay I good. actually need coffee in the morning so I can get up and make coffee. That's <laughs> I love it. Jerry Warner Wallace is my guest. We're going to continue to uh, talk about false teaching, false, uh, false messaging we hear in the culture, and we'll be right back. the show so glad to have jay warner wallace as my guest if you have not been his website uh, i really encourage you to go coldcasechristianity.com his most uh, recent book is called person of interest why jesus still matters in a world that rejects the bible you can also pick up a copy of cold case christianity um, god's um, crime scene uh, forensic faith it goes on and on uh, all the books that he has are outstanding. I think I own all of them, and I'm very happy to have them in my library. Um, Jim, when you go to Cold Case Christianity, there's there's so much to see. There's so much to uh, look at and learn from. And uh, maybe we can spend a little time talking about the different kinds of roadblocks that people come up against when it comes to uh, their faith, uh, some of their objections, you know, the, the rational, emotional, and volitional. I'd love for you to uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, and I tell you, I'm starting to shift on my thinking on this because you remember that culture shifts really fast. Yeah, exactly. And why and how we're portrayed as Christians shifts really fast. Um, you know, if you noticed that, I think it really it's happening very quickly, and especially since you know, the last um, Supreme Court decision, that that we are now being I hear you very seldom hear the word Christian anymore, without hearing it tied expressed as Christian nationalism. Right. And, and so now, and that's, by the way, that's a pejorative for most people. Most mm-hmm. people will listen to that and they'll say, that's not good because all these you know, white supremacy groups, they, you know, they'll, they'll somehow try to tie these two together. And, and so there's a sense in, and by the way, if they can, if they can change, if you can change language, you change everything. Everything is built on language. Completely. So, so if we can change Christianity to Christian nationalism, this yeah. idea that we believe that, that this is, that everyone here must be a Christian, um, that, that is going to, of course, poison any effort we have and how we are seen by culture. 
and it's a roadblock now. It's, I think the bigger roadblock for the generation in which we're living is uh, not – like I think in my generation, and I'm now 61, um, we're, we're, we talk about making a case for something. How do we know it's true evidentially? I think we're in a generation with Gen Z and Gen Alpha, but the one after Gen Z, that, that, that we really are – it's really more about emotion. It's more about narratives. It's more about wondering, is it good? Is it beautiful? Mm-hmm. Rather than, is it true? And so efforts to shift this toward true don't seem to me to matter as much to a younger generation. What matters is, is, is it – do I want to wear the T-shirt? It's an identity issue. <laughs> is do I think this is beautiful enough to want to be associated with it? And so I think as the culture tries to make everything about the, the worldview as ugly as they can, that's intentional because we're in a generation that is seeking that kind of beauty and, and significance, and the goodness of God is under question, not the godness of God. And so I think we, it is shifting now a little bit. And I, and I think for young people at least, we have to be conscientious of that. Um, and, and, and everything's about relationships, right? We, we have the best opportunity to persuade people about truth on the basis of relationship. This was not true. God could simply have communicated what he wants from us with stone tablets. Instead, he comes in the person of Jesus because the personal relationships have that kind of power. And so we have to make sure we leverage our personal relationships and, and also take good care of our personal relationships so that our, the claims we make are not, um, you know, minimized, are not dis, dis, disregarded or discarded by a culture that, that is more concerned now, I think, about beauty and identity and about what they think. Of, and by the way, and beauty is, can be quite subjective, right? This mm-hmm. is another thing altogether. So, of course, again, like we talked about before, if there isn't an objective community standard if everything is a matter of individual preference, then, then of course, even beauty cannot be grounded objectively. Even beauty is a matter of what I think is beautiful. And trust me, you don't want to go there because most of the people I've had to take to jail thought that things were beautiful that you don't think are beautiful and that things are, are valuable that you don't think are valuable or things are worthy of doing that you don't think are worthy of doing. We, we cannot be the only – we cannot measure these kinds of things individually because if we do, we open up um, our culture to monsters. And so we have to be careful. All right, Jim. So when we talk about false teachers and, and, and some of the objections that people are going to have, I would love for you, if you don't mind, just kind of walk through some of the, the, the different types of folks. Some people are going to say, well, look, at, I just have, I have some rational doubts because I don't think the evidence is solid. And others are going to just feel emotional about stuff and, and others are right. going to... Well, have, I think that we, we talk about the three ways about three reasons why anyone denies the truth. Claim, pretty, right? pretty much, yeah. Yeah, rational, emotional, and volitional, volitional right? Mm-hmm. But I actually think that most of it is staggered up into the uh, volitional side of it, right? I mean, that's and it covers a lot. So when you talk to people and you ask them, like, what's keeping you out? Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to say things that should tip your your hat a little bit if they say, "Well, I've looked at this. There's no, no there's not even any evidence that Jesus even lived." Okay, well, that's an evidential claim. They, they've got a rational objection. They don't believe that he, there's any good evidence that Jesus... Now, you can actually you can start to have a discussion about the evidence for the life and historicity of Jesus, if that's the objection. But you'll also see people will say, well, I just think that um, Christians are a bunch of racist homophobes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not, a, that's not about the evidence for Christianity. That is about a visceral response, emotional response to what they think they see in the life of Christians. 
that's a very different kind of objection. And that means we're going to have to address that with a very different kind of approach, right? Because it's not about anymore about um, whether or not this is evidentially true. This is about how you feel about a certain group you've seen. And sometimes you'll see, well, you know, uh, the people will say, well, maybe someday, but I'm not ready right now. Well, that is sometimes just volitional, right? They don't want it to be true. They are enjoying the life they're living now. They don't want to be made to feel a certain way about their behaviors. They don't want to be made to feel a certain way about um, what they think is right or wrong. And they want to be the only determiner of what is right and wrong. They don't want to bend their knee. And that is a volitional, it's a matter of will. Now, it turns out if you are in that second category, you often feel silly. That the, the kind of the, the kindest way you can say it, or the, the least, you know, the silly way you can say it is that maybe someday. But you know, who's going to say, well, no, I'm comfortable being my own God right now and determining what's right and wrong? No one's going to say that. So sometimes those folks will say, yeah, I don't think there's any good evidence for this. Even though it's not really an evidential objection they hold, they hold a volitional objection, but they want to express it in a way that seems more virtuous in our culture, which is that I'm, I, I follow the evidence and the truth. Uh, in fact, they've never even looked at the evidence of the truth. They have some volitional reason to reject it. You have to know the people you're talking to well enough to know if that's the case, because that's something very different. And how you approach volitional uh, uh, resistance is different than how you might approach rational resistance. So what what cracked your your mind to say, wait, what Jesus is claiming is true? And was your response mostly intellectual or was it? Well, some intellectual, you, you, some emotional. Yeah, I mean, you know that people like me are. I think we are all wired on this spectrum, right? It's yeah. the same thing we started off talking about: justice and mercy. Justice requires a certain objective knowledge of what is virtuous, and like you have to know the law. You have to know, like, I have to know as a police officer what are the laws that are being broken right in front of me. Mercy steps in when it's time for me to behave a certain way that respects the individual, right? So, so it's, it's justice and mercy. And so I think even in your faith, you're probably on that spectrum. So I, I, I have a tendency to be more concerned on the justice side because of just my nature, I think. That's just everyone's different. So I was somebody who needed to know on a justice, from a justice perspective, is this true? Is this actually true? Like how would you – you're making this claim. I need to know if it's actually true before I can give my heart to it. My head has to know if it's true because I'm prideful enough, and there's a lot of pride on that side of the of the scale uh, because you think you know what's true, right? And so I had to be convinced that I could I could um, that everything I believed to be true about the world. Now, what I loved about Scripture is as I read it, I was already working as a detective, and I knew that it was describing the world, the nature of people, the nature of motive, the nature, even the the character of the descriptions in the Gospels reflected the same nature of eyewitness testimony I saw in my cases. So I was taken by the fact that the Bible seemed to describe the world the way it really is. And that helped me to, to start to trust it. Now, I tested it. We talked about that in a book called Cold Case Christianity and in Person of Interest. But, uh, but that test, was what I, I, that really, for me, removed the kind of pessimistic, glass-half-empty, skeptical, detective nature I have, that helped me to, to lower that, to, to say, okay, I, I can now release that because I've done my due diligence. And I think this is a, there's good evidential reason to believe this is true. Before I could give my heart to it, I had to get my head around it. 
So, Jim, we only have about three minutes left or two minutes left. I'd love to hear about your recent trip to Alaska and who you were uh, speaking to. Well, we, we got a chance to partner with Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. It's on their website. They do a thing called their Law Enforcement Appreciation Program, and they have a, a marriage retreat, like a marriage resiliency retreat. And, you know, when we got up there, I, I just I was asked a chaplain uh, of the first two years now. We did, it, we did it last year, and we're doing it again this year. And so we just happened to dumb into this in the sense that they knew we were police officers and, you know, a couple have been involved in law enforcement for all these years. And I'd written some things about this. And I've been in the same with my wife now for 43 years. And so they kind of felt like, okay, let's see what this, these, these can, you can help these guys. And, and so we take couples up there who have been involved in horrific, sometimes life-changing in terms of their injury mm-hmm. uh, incidents on, on duty. And now they're under that trauma, their marriage has been affected by wow. it. And, and we get to watch what God does in that setting of Alaska. And we spend a week talking about marriage. And it's been yeah, this has been the kind of thing that's changed the way I see ministry. And it's changed the way I see how God works. I mean, it's been the most transformational experience for me personally. So I'm just glad to be a small part of it. You can go online at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and see what they're doing for law enforcement. Yeah, I saw one picture where all the couples were doing some kind of thunder plunge into icy waters. Yes, that's but right. That seems that's pretty nuts. Plunge. Yeah. Yeah, that is, yeah. 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 But you have to do that once in a while because it's a bonding experience, right? <laughs> and what we see is that, that, yeah, that men are, and women are changed completely. And I thought, you know, of myself as I'm a cop too, but it turns yeah. out I'm old enough to be their parent. Oh, funny. And so you have this paternal relationship with these couples. It's been awesome. Yeah. Jim, thank you so much for being on the show. Always love talking to you. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Bill. You bet. Have a great rest of the day. Jay Warner Wallace has been my guest. Go to coldcasechristianity.com. Learn more about Jim and his amazing writings and books. That's all the time we have. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.